Welcome to the Different People Podcast, where we explore inclusion, diversity, and belonging in conversations about the often untold experiences of different people. These conversations are candid, spontaneous, and can sometimes be difficult. Yet they are necessary and critical to the healthy functioning of communities, organizations, and society as a whole. My name is Lisa Schmidt. I'm a leadership coach, a senior consultant in organizational development, and a professional speaker. And my name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist, an expert in diversity and inclusion, executive coach, and a professional speaker as well. And we are your hosts. So we are back for season two of the Different People podcast, and we'd love to welcome our listeners back. We'd love that you've spent lots of time with us in the past season, and some episodes we're thrilled to let you know had over 250 people listen, and we've had quite a bit of feedback on the strengths of the show, which mostly center on our willingness to talk about tough topics with some curiosity and plenty of vulnerability. So we're going to keep those elements of the show, but we're going to be shifting a bit in this season to focus primarily on organizations and leaders and at the broadest scale, organizational culture, but also teams and individual leaders and the impact they can have on their teams. And Raymond, where where would you like to start this? Because we ended the last season talking about wanting to have a revolution. So share some thoughts with uh, me and our listeners about where your thinking goes to when you hear the word or talk about revolution. I think it's critically important to pick up uh, on that theme and to talk about why and how talking about organizations and leadership is very important in a revolution. And in my perspective, it's because that's where leadership, that's where change begins. When you are a leader, or at least when you have authority, you have less barriers, you have more privilege, and you're able to make change significantly faster. Unfortunately, a lot of times people have this impression that change takes a very long time. It's very complicated. And when it comes to DNI, a lot of people will talk about a stepped process. And while I understand theoretically that makes sense, you know, I don't think it I don't think it's right that we always go in a stepped way. I think we can make bigger changes right away. It is true that good change will gradually get better, but I think we can make change fairly quickly. And I would turn to leaders to be able to make that change. Furthermore, people might think when we talk about leadership and organizations that it somehow excludes them, but we are all in some way a part of some form of an organization. You know, we are some form of community, some form of society. We are part of a group and we cannot make change alone. It's critical that we pay attention to making change together. And when we speak about revolution, we need to be thinking about revolution together. And so when we work, not just, I think, from top down, which is where I think we need to start, but we also need to start thinking from the bottom up. And when the both ends meet, is when we have this really beautiful change experience. And so that's my take on where and why we need to be focusing on a revolution when it comes to leadership and organizations. 
So when I hear revolution, I imagine somebody in a green beret. There, there's something about the word revolution that kind of touches me in a way that other language that we've talked about in previous episodes a white, around white fragility or white supremacy. It's a word that has particular connotations. And I think is maybe part of this is reclaiming revolution. But if you look at a lot of the change literature, particularly around organizations, I'm not saying I agree with this, but there's this idea that you need to create a change team and you need sponsors and then you need to create a burning platform, like why we need to do this. And by the time you've got all the pieces together, it's it kind of is like a deflated balloon. It it doesn't have the sense of urgency that I think what well, when when I think about revolution is mostly the urgency in it is that everything we've done up until now isn't really working. And you know, I think one of the problems with this is when we talk about leaders, leaders are often recognized and rewarded for getting things done. And when it comes to diversity and equity and inclusion, leaders and the organizations they represent want a solution. They want to fix it as if there's, you know, a, a slat missing on a bench, you know, let's just find a really solid slat and nail it in. As opposed to thinking this is a complex issue, it's systematic, it is part of the wider world in which we live. It's entrenched in a culture of bias that we have all grown up in and we can't change it by finding a solution. We actually have to change what we think about in terms of leadership from doing something to being something. And I think that's where I really like the language around being an anti-racist because it's about how you show up. I, I agree with you. I mean, so many things you just said there, I totally agree with. I, I, I want to kind of talk about this idea of wanting a solution. And I, I'm not entirely sure if, if people want a solution so much as they want the problem to go away. And I think it's, it's for those reasons that often we get these bandage solutions, you know, it's like, well, let's just hire a few more people of color and call it a day. Let's just, you know, make a statement and then not act on it. You know, we'll put up a black square. We'll, we'll come up with a policy and we'll say it, but there's never any follow through. And that's the dilemma. And that to me suggests that suggests two things. Regardless of intention, it suggests that you just want the problem to go away so you can go back to doing things the way you did. And number two, it speaks to the second, the initial comment you made of urgency is that there is not an understanding of the sense of urgency. And that speaks to the privilege a lot of people hold where they don't, that their privilege doesn't allow them to see the urgency. And that's the note, that's where we go back to that beret, right? And I want to put on my beret now. And I want to speak to that sense of revolution. And yes, and for some people, it, you know, it might have violent connotations, but I'm not suggesting violent connotations. I'm suggesting like imminent action. Like we really need to start to move on this as soon as possible. And, and my take on it, as you've said this often before, Lisa, that the, the hard work is the solution, right? It, it, isn't, it isn't about the, the one statement you make it's the it's the process 
because it's the process that makes the change. And we have to think about things psychologically that in order for us to be able to shift emotional experiences and thinking process, the behavior has to be ongoing. We can't expect a single behavior, a single instance, a single policy release to be able to shift thinking and emotional patterns, which ultimately, you know, result in a change in policy and practice. But we need an ongoing chain. We need an ongoing accountability. And that's the dilemma. You know, we, we started this podcast amidst the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was some sense of urgency, but that urgency is not going to last. I hate to tell you this as a cynic. And we, the, the urgency only comes up when it hits the news. But people of color have been facing this for a very long time. Like we've been struggling through these challenges in the workplace, in organizations, on a regular basis. Our voices aren't heard. We're often silenced. When we are given a platform, it's very tokenistic. And it makes you feel infantilized. Like you're the child that's being taken care of. And, you know, it's not... It's not for us not being able to stand up and say something. It's just that we aren't really supported. And there's a quiet about this. And that's why we need to move from this quiet about this. We need to move out of the quote unquote professional reaction to this, to the emotional and the very urgent need to talk about this problem. Because I think we, as, as with organizations and leaders, we shy away from the emotional and when we shy away from the emotional because we think it's not professional but how the heck are we going to actually accomplish anything without talking about the emotional element tied to racism and discrimination we can't get past that and we have to get used to dealing with our emotions it has to be a part of our new professional attitude if we're going to make some success and that's part of the urgency yeah i i can oh go ahead sorry Oh, I I just wanted to add one thing. That's so part of what you and I were talking about before is about what we want people to start to do as a part of this revolution. And part of that is to talk about their emotions, about how they felt in the workplace with leadership as leaders or as following leaders or um, in an organization or as leading an organization. What has been your emotion about racism and discrimination in those places? Sorry, I cut you off now. No, that's okay. I I have a lot to say around what we think leadership is. In my view, we still are living with the remnants of the industrial age when it comes to what we think the role of leaders is. And I find it deeply ironic that, you know, there's lots of talk about we need to be more vulnerable as leaders. We need to have more empathy as leaders. But leaders in organizations do not feel safe being more vulnerable or showing more empathy. There's a real culture of leadership. And I would argue that it stems from a long history, whether it's industrial or from the military, about not losing face and or always having the answers. And here's something that really gets on my nerves, uh, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll share this with you. There was this movement a couple years ago, it's probably still ongoing, where leaders would 
pre-COVID, get in a room and they'd have a town hall and they'd call it an ask me anything. And so here are people in the room coming up to the front or, you know, from where they're sitting, asking a question of leaders. Now, this to me reinforces a system where leaders have the answers. And what I want to see in organizations is shifting to a tell me anything. Get the leaders in a room and have people tell them what their lived experience is of being an employee in that organization. The impact of your policies, the poor leadership and the people that you put in places to monitor the performance of employees. You know, we, we, we live in organizations for big chunks of our lives. And, you know, I, I, I find this kind of funny and interesting is that we talk about living in a democracy, but as soon as you walk into the doors of any car, any organization you work in, you are literally in a dictatorship. You either follow the rules or you're out. But we couch it in all kinds of, we want you to bring your best self and your true self. And I can tell you, having been severed uh, in from an organization that really wanted me to bring my best self and part of my best self challenged how things were done. Well, I'm no longer with that organization because apparently that, that best self wasn't the one that was wanted. So I think there's, you know, we really need to dig at the broader pieces of or, what organizations are and do. And I think this is even more difficult for, for Black employees, for Indigenous employees, for employees who are people of color, because even with inviting people or with language of inclusiveness, it is always put on other groups and not the predominant leadership group to make changes. The work is always still being given to the people who have to seek their own equity as opposed to people in positions of power who I guess are equity denying groups, because if people have to seek it, there's something in the way from them having it. Well, at least part of the dilemma here is I, I think you're correct. There is this sense in leadership and geez, I don't even know where to begin. We have a lot to talk about this, this season, a lot to talk about. Let me start with this concept of vulnerability. You know, Brene Brown talks a lot about this concept of vulnerability it's one thing to be vulnerable as a leader, just in general. It's another to be vulnerable when it comes to issues of racism. It's, if you know, if you are from the majority, if you're white, being vulnerable means admitting to error. And error, when it comes to issues of racism, can be a very scary thing. It can have legal consequences for some people. It can be misinterpreted. And so I don't believe that we are in a setting where we are encouraging learning. I think it creates a lot of difficult situations. So I think there's that. And I also don't think that there's safety, especially for people of color to talk about their experiences. And they can't be that vulnerable because when, when they are, we're, people of color have this double-edged sword. People will say, well, come forward. We need you to kind of mention what you need, but what then it's brought when that's brought up, it's turned down. So it's a bit like being gaslit. So let me give you an example of a of a, a not a very sophisticated organization, not a very large one, but I'll, I'll talk about the organization of my kids Montessori, and and I think the example here can really be reflected in any organization. But my kids Montessori had a very diverse group of students. 
people that came from different cultural backgrounds, different ethnic and religious backgrounds. And the way that they addressed diversity and inclusion was by celebrating cultures or countries around the world. And so there was still this concept that if you, if you came from that, you were still foreign. And on the other side, they wouldn't celebrate any holidays except for Christmas in a very big way. So I suggested to the director, look, you've got a very diverse group of children here. Why not start to sell instead of focusing on cultures outside? It's good to do that. But why don't we focus on the diversity within Canada, but also within your own organization, within your own school? Well, they came back and said, no, we don't need to do that. Because if people felt it was important, they would come up and ask us. And so here I am coming up to ask, and I'm being told, you know, what you have to say is not important. We're doing things the right way. If we were to take that and to apply it to a broader example, Winnipeg, I brought this example up before, but Winnipeg was named the most racist city in Canada. There is a ton of racism, particularly towards Indigenous communities uh, here in the city. And our mayor uh, worked, at least uh, reports, to be working very hard to address that. As an expert in diversity and inclusion, I had made numerous recommendations to him to say, why don't we start to celebrate the holidays of all cultural communities uh, you know, openly as a city, instead of just putting up Christmas lights, you know, during uh, Christmas, why don't we put up lights up all year round and they can turn on in different colors over the course of the year. So they would celebrate different aspects of the city and different people in the city. The response was a non-response. I was told I'd be invited to speak with him if he won the election again. I, that was never the case. Um, there was a group uh, that cre we created a, um, a letter that people had signed off on electronically media had done tons of stories about this. CBC had actually approached him at uh, the mayor's office and said, you know, are you, uh, you know, what do you think about this? Will you do this? And the response was, we're doing enough from the mayor's office. We are doing enough. We acknowledge Eid and Hanukkah. And, and that already, that response doesn't speak to the, the knowledge of cultural communities because Hanukkah is not a high holiday. And we acknowledge them at City Hall. And then that's, we're, do, we're, doing our, we're, we're doing what we need to do. And that's enough. And so it gets shut down. So people of color, uh, cultural, religious, ethnic minorities will come up and say, this is what we need. Listen to us. And the response is shut down. And so right from a small organization all the way up to a large organization, so to speak, the city, we're seeing this repeated over and over. And that's where it gets to the point where one of two things need to happen right now. We either toe the line and keep things as are and are shocked at the racism we face in our society and in our organizations and the systemic racism, or we start to get frustrated and we have a revolution. And so, you know, Lisa, I, you and I have had these discussions and I turn to you and your expertise in organizational development is how do we have these now? revolutions. And that's what I really want to be able to focus on moving mm -hmm. forward is how do we have these revolutions? How do we get leadership to change? But also how do we as individuals, regardless of whether we have any elected uh, or hired authority, how do we become leaders ourselves in trying to move forward an anti-racist policy within our societies and within our organization? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm going to, um, with your permission, I'm going to quote Rumi, the Persian poet from the 13th century, who said, 
work in the invisible world at least as hard as you do in the visible world. And I start there because organizations and leaders find it a lot easier to work in the visible world. Let's hire more people of color into our organization. Let's send everybody to bias-free training. Let's send a memo from the CEO. Let's sit on a panel and talk about how we have something that might be unrelated to different ethnicities or cultural groups or skin colors, but we'll talk about how great we are at hiring women and always doing this thing that is in the visible world. And I give full credit to organizations who are stepping in to do those things. They are part of a process, but often they end there. And the real work that actually changes the culture is the invisible work. And that's the work where people actually start looking at what in them is the obstacle to creating the world that people are asking for. And by the way, Black, Indigenous, people of color are not saying, you know, we hate white leaders, get out of our way. People are seeking conversations in which we can talk about real issues. And I think there's an incredible fear in organizations that if we, you know, quote unquote, open this can of worms around having deeply meaningful conversations that are, you know, in great likelihood, I mean, you've talked about the emotional quality that leaders need to have. These are difficult emotional conversations. They can be deeply uncomfortable. But in order to progress in any way, you cannot move forward. And maybe this is a terrible example, but it's the only one that I can think of right now. If a couple is in a serious crisis in their relationship and one partner in the relationship seeks uh, you know, emotional or sexual connection with another person, the only way that the marriage or that relationship can get stronger is going through a period of dealing with the pain of the rupture that happened. And it is the same in every part of life. You cannot just gloss things over and not do the emotional work. You know, you said earlier, the hard work is the solution. What I say is the hard work is the shortcut. The only way to get to where you want to go is to look inside. And I, again, I love that organizations are doing the difficult uh, work of the visible things because you do have to take a stand, but it's not enough. So I I agree with you. And that's the dilemma here is that the work that's being done at best, and I'm not, I, I don't think that all organizations are doing this, and there isn't work being done internally to understand the problem. And so what happens then is there's a mismatch between actually what's being done and what needs to be done. So when you don't truly, like, you know, and any health practitioners, you cannot treat a problem until you have a proper assessment. And so what's happening is there's a lot of treatment of a problem that's happening without a correct assessment. And part of the assessment requires the leader's review of their own thinking, their own biases, and how they run an organization and how their thinking leads into how they govern or lead an organization. If they can't do that as a part of an assessment, every treatment, every intervention offered will be, will miss the mark. Yeah. I'm jumping in here because I think that there often is not even any assessment. It's, oh my goodness, we're getting it wrong. Quick, you know, get the list of things that we need to do. 
And I think a lot of it, and, and I might be wrong here. So I'm, you know, if any organization feels I'm speaking out of turn about misrepresenting them and I'm not naming anyone, that there's this kind of rush to do the right thing, not to do the right thing, but to be able to say to people, hey, look at us. We're not part of those terrible organizations over there who are denying that there's systemic racism. We're admitting it. We are totally admitting there's systemic racism. But then you look at the actions that follow from that. And there isn't a whole heck of a lot that changes. I mean, I, I, I struggle around this idea that, and I'm taking a pause here because I, I, I do want to collect myself. I have, I have built my career working inside organizations. And I have found them very difficult places to work. Because I feel that what is expected of me is an extraction of my wisdom and my intellect. But it, that's all very much tied in with who I am as a person and the things that I feel around the work that I do. But I'm asked to just bring a part of myself and keep this whole other part of myself away. And yeah. I am not a robot. I am not like... And maybe I'm, getting, I'm making this too personal. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take criticism on that. But what we're asking employees to do is to basically come in, give us the thing that we pay you for, and don't have any other humanity while you're in this space. And that, to me, is a huge lack of understanding of what it means when we hire people. We hire people. People are full of incredible potential and talent and wisdom and knowledge. And yet it's almost like we ask them to saw themselves in half before they enter the doors of our organizations, because we don't want to hear that they're angry about lack of inclusion. We don't want to hear that they don't like our policies around childcare. We don't want to hear those things. Just show up, do your job. And here's your pay. There's a quote I don't know who the quote came from, but it was said, we often blame society, but we don't realize that we are society. And I would say that applies to both to those who are leaders and, and those who want to become leaders. It applies to all of us. It's a call to action for us to step up into a leadership role. And as we do that, as we step into a leadership role to advocate for the issue of anti-racism, there has to be, whether, whether we are people of color or we are not people of color, we need to start to have greater levels of insight. As you talked about, you know, the invisible work, the work within ourselves to identify our own points of view. And that would apply to concepts of our own biases, um, how that impacts how we engage, what policies we choose to take on and what we don't, but also for those people of color, even the concept of internalized racism, you know, does that keep us quiet? You know, does that prevent us from advocating or championing certain causes or do we stay quiet? And that happens a lot. As we move forward into this season, as we move forward into this season, Part of what we want to do that's revolutionary is to engage all, and, and we can't, we can't do this revolution alone. As I stated earlier, we, this has to be a group thing. So we hope that you'll come on board this revolution with us. But one thing as a takeaway today for this little piece of our revolution, we'd like to hear from you. 
shared on social media without the fear of sounding unprofessional to talk about your emotional experience with racism in leadership, in your organizations, so that we start to be able to acknowledge. In our past season, we wanted to do a lot more interviews and we realized this is not a way to pull in so many voices. They'll bring up a very select few, but we, we need a lot more voices heard in this revolution. So we'd like you to begin to have your voice heard in this revolution with us. So like us on social media, comment on, we're typically on LinkedIn, but we're also on Twitter. Yeah. And wherever you, sorry, Raymond, wherever you listen to our podcast, please give us a review. We really love it when you give us five stars, but we'll take four too. And um, help us have these conversations. If you go to our differentpeople.ca website, you'll see there's a pop-up asking what we would like us to cover in this season. We really want to talk about things that move the dial, turn the needle, whatever the, I never get these, <laughs> I never get these metaphors right. But we want to be all of us with you, a part of making significant change so that at some point, Hopefully in the not too distant future, we have other things to talk about than the problems that we're facing in terms of our inclusivity yeah. or we lack can, we thereof. Can, we, we can turn this podcast into one about cake. <laughs> once, we, once, once we address the issues of inclusion, we can just move this into talking there we about go. cake. We're, we're all going to be baking. Thank yeah. you for listening and please stay tuned. Next episode coming up in two weeks. Thank you for spending time with us. To learn more about our work and listen to other episodes, please visit differentpeople.ca. Post-production services provided by jonathanlay.net and thanks to Blue Eye Music for our music theme. You can reach us all through the contact information in the show notes. And new episodes of the Different People podcast are uploaded regularly to Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Please join us again. And until soon...